If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. My love, God is here when you choose goodness and are living from your heart. When you follow the path of love, God is with you from the start. And God is there when you mess up, if you make a choice that isn't best. It doesn't mean you're bad. It just means you're human, like all the rest. An excerpt from My Love, God is Everywhere, written by our guests, the Reverend Mamas. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. Today, we're talking with the Reverend Mamas, Cameron Vickery and Victoria Robb Powers. They are pastors, mamas, and authors of a new children's book, My Love God is Everywhere, that Esther and I are huge fans of. So we're really excited to have you guys here with us today to chat. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We're big fans of you guys, too. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> we appreciate that. Before we get into sort of the nitty gritty about your book and, and who you guys are, can you just give us a little bit of an idea of what your day-to-day looks like, what your family looks like, and maybe outside of some of this pastoral stuff, what makes your heart come alive? I don't know. Cameron, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I live in San Antonio, Texas. I have three kids, all girls. They are 13, 11, and 8. So we're getting just a little bit out of the children's book kind of phase of life, which is, I think, why I wanted to write one. (laughs) (laughs) Love children's books so much. I wanted to stay in that phase for a little bit longer. So let's see. I work for a nonprofit called Fellowship Southwest. I do communications and fundraising. It's a Christian nonprofit. We work a lot with migrants on the border and other social justice causes. So I work from home. So my day-to-day life is taking kids to school, working from home, doing (laughs) stuff with Victoria for Reverend Mamas, and then shuttling them to all their activities. Because we're also, they're in that phase of life where they all have things that they're getting into and they're busy. And I think to answer the second part of that question, that's what's making my heart sing is watching them do the things they love. I have one that's a competitive swimmer and one that is a competitive horseback rider. Things that I never thought that my kids would be into things that I was never into, but that's one of the joys to me of parenting is watching them become fully who they are Mm. and figure that out and do the things that they love. We actually have a horse, which is just so weird to me still, because I know I'm in Texas. And so people think that's probably what everyone does, but I'm a city girl. I grew up in Dallas and now I'm in San Antonio and like I never was around horses, but now like we own a horse. It's the weirdest thing because of kids, right? They introduce you. You never thought. Is there anything like super quirky about you that nobody would guess that you love to do? I have watched a soap opera since I was a child. Yes. Which one? Almost every single day of my life. 
the bold and the beautiful. Oh my gosh. That is one of my favorite quirky things we've ever had. And here's what I love about it. It's 30 minutes, you know, and minus commercials, it takes me like 15 minutes to watch, but I could not watch it for a few months and pick back up. And I know exactly what's going on because not much happens every day. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. Every woman in my extended family watches it. And so we'll like text each other like, oh, you got to watch the show today. Something happened. You know, (laughs) that is cool. I love that. Cameron, that's so fun. All All right. How about you, Victoria? Yeah, I live in Dallas with my husband. We also have three children. I have a son who's eight and two daughters that are five and two. So life is chaotically joyful having three children that age, but it's a lot of fun. I'm also the senior pastor of a Baptist church here in the Metroplex. I just started serving in this role in January. I'm actually the first female senior pastor of a Baptist church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So it's really exciting for me, but for our church and also for our tradition. Being in Texas, you know, there's not a lot of female pastors, let alone senior pastors. So my day-to-day life is different, I guess, every day. I do a lot of writing, obviously, weekly sermon writing, also try to write for, you know, op-eds and different news outlets. I think it's important that people in the church have a voice in the public square too. And Cameron's dad, funny enough, was a pastor of mine and and a great mentor of mine who taught me a lot about what that looks like. And then all the other demands that come with being a pastor, managing a staff, getting into the stewardship campaign for next year, pastoral care visits. I'm running by the hospital later today to visit a woman who had surgery. And so, Some people think that when you're a pastor, you just work on Sundays and little do they know that there is much to be done. You work like 24 hours, seven days a week. Probably my my greatest struggle is just learning, you know, how to set up boundaries and, and manage my time well enough that I can protect myself and my family and so forth. So one of my big things, I talk to my husband a lot about this in the church is, you know, I just don't want my children to grow up presenting the church because their mom was never around because she was always at the church. And so I try to be very transparent with folks that that's such a priority of mine and try to figure out ways to manage my time well. But day-to-day life looks like switching hats, you know, being a pastor and being a mom back and forth all the time. It, but it's also such a gift and a privilege. And I'm really, I'm really grateful to do what I do as challenging as it is. So what makes my heart sing Honestly, I know that we're talking about the book, but it really is good faith-based literature for kids, good theology for kids. I'm so proud to be in a church that I think my children will inherit a theology that's life-giving to them that they won't have to deconstruct from later on. And that's such a gift. I didn't grow up in a tradition like that. So it gives me so much joy and just makes my heart sing to teach children about a God that they can trust and love. So Mm, And what about you, Quirky? Need a quirky thing from you. Oh, me quirky. I don't know if this is quirky, but I I love fine dining and I will spend money on food. That's okay by me if it's really good. (laughs) My husband's like that. He always like everywhere. If we go anywhere, he always has a place that he needs to go. I think that's fun. I think that's quirky. I think too, it's like one of those things where, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like growing up in like a fundamentals Christian background, like you, you aren't really allowed to love things that seem frivolous, right? right? 
worldly. Yeah. So like leaning into that of like, I'm going to spend money on food or I'm going to spend money on my hair or my, you know, my nails or whatever. Like that has been so healing to me. Right. And I feel like hearing you as a pastor saying like, I like spending money on good food. It's like so healing and cool. It is. I love that. I am so not a fine dining person. And I have this <laughs> crazy story. My husband loves fine dining. He took me like to the fanciest restaurant in the world in our area for our first date. And there was like a new waiter and they brought what I thought was like ice cream between like our appetizer and the soup. Here I am on my first date and I'm like, why did they bring ice cream? He's like, uh, Esther, that's sorbet. That's like to cleanse your palate. And I was like, okay, I don't know if this guy's going to ever go on a date with me. That's funny. <laughs> But he did, and we've been married forever. So I love that about you. I think that's fantastic. Yay. All right. So we would love to know from each of you, if you had to describe your faith background, and you started to allude to it, Victoria, in one word or phrase, what would it be and why? I've been thinking about this, and I'm glad that there's the why part to this question so I can explain I would say narcissist. (laughs) And the only reason why is because I grew up in a tradition that was so focused on self-improvement that now that I'm out of that tradition, I look back and it, it feels sort of like a dangerous form of narcissism. Like all we were talking about was our own individual piety or it just was so self-reflective, but not in the way that we, I would maybe think about being self-reflective now. It was more on you know, me being bad and how do I do more good, but not in terms of justice or action, but just more in terms of maybe my thoughts or how often I read my Bible or pray, or I look back on it and it feels like a very narcissistic expression of faith that had very little to do with my neighbor and everything to do with just my own sinfulness and need to do better every day. And Yeah, that's how I would describe it. Wow. All right. What about you, Cameron? My word is healthy. (laughs) Victoria and I always talk about how our experiences growing up in the church were so different. And it's interesting because we're both Baptist. She grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition. My experience as a Baptist was a little bit different because I was a preacher's kid. My dad was the pastor. And one of the first things he did when, when he started at the church that I grew up in, which was when I was five years old, was leave the Southern Baptist Convention hmm. and help start the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is just like a more moderate, it was more progressive at the time. And the reason that they did that is because to be more affirming to women as uh, ministers and women leaders. And so that's kind of the context that I grew up in was always sort of seeking, you know, where the spirit was leading and something that my dad taught me from a young age. I don't know that he ever used these words with me as a child, but something that he taught as by example is that the spirit is always moving toward inclusion. That's kind of the basis of my understanding of church which I think is pretty different from Victoria's, but, but also here's another piece of what was healthy. It was developmentally appropriate too. So I can remember being a kid and to me, being a Christian was like, how many Bible verses can I memorize? Right. That's not necessarily what I teach my kids now, but at the time, like, I think there is some developmentally appropriate things like that, that now serve me well. 
that I'm glad that I went through. I can remember being a teenager and being a little bit black and white about stuff. And I don't think that's something that my, my parents taught me, but it was part of my theological journey. My spiritual journey is going through that. And then I remember loosening up with those things in college. And as I became an adult, I, I hadn't actually really thought of that until just now as I'm saying it, but I don't think that I was always like as open and maybe progressive as I am today. But I think that the examples that I saw really helped me get there in a much more smooth way. I didn't really have to go through a painful period of deconstruction. Victoria. So I wanted to add to that because, so Cameron's dad, I mentioned earlier, is a mentor of mine. And I was a member, I didn't come to their church till I was a young adult. So I was in my early twenties. I was a seminary student at the time. And I would just say one of the things that her dad taught me is that faith evolves. Mm -hmm. And he taught that by example. So maybe this is kind of some of what you're saying, Cameron, but you know, when, when I got to, it's called Wilshire Baptist Church, the church was very affirming of women, but not an open and affirming congregation, like to the LGBTQ community. But then over time, they did become that. And George, her dad, will talk a lot about how his sort of theological journey, his spiritual journey evolved over time. And I think as a pastor, to be a parishioner and to see my pastor change his mind on things was a witness to me that faith should always be evolving. That's not a vice. That's a virtue to watch somebody's faith evolve. And so I do think Cameron grew up in a home that modeled that. I did not, but that us having two very different experiences helped us as co-authors, because I can talk about the healing messages that parents who grew up like me might need as they read this to their child. And she can talk from experience what it's like to grow up in a healthy theological environment and home. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that you guys are talking about that sort of like safety to explore your faith, mm -hmm. because I think for many of us, sounds like Cameron, you experienced some safety with that, right? Like you felt like you could be where you were in your faith and that you weren't being told otherwise, right? But I think when we, we're always going to have different ideas of things, but if we can find safety to discuss things and to believe different things, right? And to even suggest something different than was thought before, that is like really, I think what so many of us are looking for. No one is looking for this specific answer. We don't, we don't know it's not, it doesn't exist, mm. but if we can have safety to search for it or to ask for it or to question the answers we've been given, like, that's what we're looking for, right? I just think it's super powerful that I loved what you said, that it was always moving toward inclusion. That is, I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> that is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. It's what we see in the Bible, right? Like right. Jesus embracing, you know, not just Israelites and then in Acts of the church being open to Gentiles. It's kind of right. always, that movement is always headed in that direction. So, mm -hmm. Well, and I even think of the Old Testament, all the laws about the orphan and the widow and the, and the eunuch and the people who are picking grain at the edges of the field. There's always movement toward, we're not the only ones. We need to welcome the outsider, the stranger, the foreigner. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So uh, that's really powerful. And I think it gives people a lot of hope that there are churches and people and pastors out there. It's not like a desert. I mean, it, it feels like a desert in many ways, but there are pockets of people and 25, 30 years ago. That's you know amazing to me. And so just opening our eyes and minds to be like, wow, there are people who've been doing a good work that have been paving the way for, say, this great deconstruction. Yeah. 
that's happening now that we call, but your dad was paving the way, which is huge. I mean, and so when we look at our, our own lives, we can be like, oh, am I making any kind of difference? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we're continuing to pave the way. And I think what it is, is there are people that are just quietly, faithfully doing that. You know, we keep talking about my dad, but the church that Victoria is the pastor of has been open and affirming to the LGBT community as a Baptist church for so long, decades, I think, just kind of quietly, naturally. And, you know, it's just that people don't talk about that. It does. It's not not Mm -hmm. newsworthy. Right. And so that's why a lot of people think there's that's just not out there. But it is. It is. (laughs) I love that. I think so many are looking for that and don't believe it exists. So I think just hearing you guys say that and you alluded to it a little bit, Cameron, you talked about how you're a little bit more progressive now and then talking about Victoria's Church. But where are you guys now in your faith? Yeah, You know, I had lunch the other day with a woman who's been visiting our church and she gave me such a wonderful compliment. She said, you know what I love about you and your church is that your church really loves the Bible and you really preach the Bible. I'm I'm very much an expository preacher. I'm not a topical one. I love to preach the scriptures. And she said, but your church is also very progressive. And I just didn't think that existed. I sort of felt like if I was going to be a progressive person of faith, I was just inevitably going to have to become a humanist. Like there was no way I could sort of hang on to the Bible or Christian history. You know, I was just going to have to sort of sacrifice it all. She's like, I just didn't know this existed. And so I guess my faith journey has, I've learned to fall in love with the Bible again. I mean, I think that's common in, in any journey of deconstruction. We sort of feel like we have to put it away for a while. And maybe we do. I'm not criticizing that that decision. But I guess for me, I feel like I'm at a place where I'm learning that we don't need a new spiritual word, that actually what we have really does inform a life that is not self-centered like the one I grew up in, but is outwardly focused on neighborliness and love of the other and justice and compassion and all these things. So Uh, there's been a transition for me from this inward focus to this outward focus. And it turns out I didn't need new tools. I just maybe needed a new lens for the same tools. So that's cool. A new lens. That's really great. A new lens. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Love that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think, I think my word is open. So one thing I'm really embracing right now is what I'm learning from my friends or authors of other traditions, other religions, even. And that's not to say that they are, you know, convincing me to, to abandon my faith and join theirs, but what does their faith inform about, inform me about mine? How does it inform my own? Mm. So for example, I've read a couple of books recently and met people from the Sikh religion and which is just so beautiful. And so many of their teachings align with kind of my flavor of Christianity And I'm learning a lot from indigenous brothers and sisters about traditional wisdom and mother earth and our connection to the land and the earth and how important that is for my faith. And so I think there's places where I'm seeing God and seeing the movement of the spirit in, in places other than just my own tradition. And it's making me, I think a better person and a better Christian. Mm. Yeah, this summer I read with uh, my daughters and my niece a Buddhist book called You Are Here by Thich Nhat Hanh. I guess that's how you pronounce it. And it was interesting to me that I was able to come to it 
with an open mind, but also a critical mind. And I, I loved some things about it and I didn't love other things. And then I thought, oh, well, that's what I can do with the Bible. Like I can do that with my own tradition and just struck me that I am moving to a place where I can be open-minded, but I don't have to like switch. Mm, yeah. But there was a lot that I thought, oh my gosh, this is so much like Jesus. <laughs> and then others of it, I was like, mm, nah, I'm going to put that aside. And so I did a reflection this morning. I do a quarterly reflection and did it this morning. And I, I thought, um, my one thing I learned in the summer was I don't want to be a Buddhist, but I learned a lot from Buddhism. Yeah. It was one of my favorite things I learned this summer. And then it also helps me to uh, look at my own tradition of Christianity and be like, hmm, there are some things I love about it and other things I'm like, mm, no. And I'm talking about the tradition that I grew up in. So, sure, of course. Yeah, that's really neat. Uh, well, how did you, how did the Reverend Mamas, like you two, the Reverend Mamas come to be? And what's your greatest desire about creating the space that the two of you have? Well, we came together, we met each other about 12 or 13 years ago. Cameron's husband was actually serving as a pastoral resident at the church that I was interning at for my supervised ministry while I was in seminary. So we met then, but but we were really not friends then. We were just acquaintances. And then I went on to start working as a hospital chaplain and they moved to San Antonio. And so we didn't really keep in touch at all. And then we reconnected because I started serving on the board of Fellowship Southwest, which is the organization that she works for. And even then, just sort of, oh, I remember you. But again, not not much of a, a friendship at that point. And then I get asked pretty routinely as a pastor and as a mother for resources to help parents raise their children in the Christian faith. And I just for the longest time could never really provide many resources. I just thought, gosh, I don't know. you know. And I was getting embarrassed more and more often that I couldn't tell parents, here's what you should read to your children. Here's, you know, the Bible I recommend or just, you know, what have you. And I had just seen Cameron at a board meeting and I thought, you know what? She would know. She grew up obviously in a home where she inherited a very healthy faith and her husband's a pastor. She's one, her dad, you know, she just surely she'll know. And she has three children. They're a little bit older than mine. So she'll have the wisdom. So I just texted her and she wrote back and said, I think she might have mentioned one or two books that she utilizes at home, but she said, you know, there really aren't a whole lot of resources out there. Maybe we should write a book. And it was sort of a tongue in cheek comment, but it was funny because I've actually always wanted to write a children's book. And I have a great friend in California who'd always said that if I did, she'd love to illustrate it. So I, I wrote back and I said, I don't know if you're serious or not, but if you are, I'd actually really love to do that. And so we started this project, but I always say to people, you know, the greatest gift of the book and, you know, creating the Reverend Mamas was, was the friendship. The development of the book was the development of the friendship. We really were not friends before this. And then we just had this idea and the friendship grew as the project grew. So it's been really delightful. And I think our goal is to help resource parents with tools for how to talk to their children about the faith. Turns One of the really wonderful things we've learned in this journey is that the well is not as dry as we thought it was in terms of good faith-based literature for kids. Yeah. We have connected with lots of people, thanks to the beauty of Instagram and other things. We found other authors and like-minded pastors or faith thinkers who too want to help create a language for children, a theology that uh, I think Meredith Miller always says, you know, a faith they won't have to heal from. And so that's been a gift too, to realize there are more people out there doing this. So that's our goal. And that's how we came to be. 
I love that. Having young kids, I lean so heavily on people like you, Meredith Miller. I literally just like absorb everything she has to say, right? Because I'm not a pastor. I mean, I've been in the church my whole life. There's a lot of things that I know, but I need support to raise my kids in a faith they won't have to heal from, right? And so I think so many out there are like this. And so what you guys are doing, not just with your children's book, but I think just with your presence and probably what you guys are going to do in the future, it's going to be really healing and faith-saving, I think, for a lot of people to realize like, oh, we don't have to just throw it all out. We can salvage some stuff and and actually it can be great. One of my favorite parts of your book, which I had never seen before in a children's book, a religious Christian children's book, was this the idea that communicating to them that they're good, or they choose good or they don't. And I just wanted to ask you, what was the inspiration behind that idea of getting it out there to tell kids that they're good? Mm, That's a great question. When you look through the book, you'll see that the, the whole thing is a series of questions that a little girl asks her mother about where is God? Is God here? Is God there? Is God here when I'm happy or there when I'm sad? And one of the questions she asks is, is God here when I'm good or there when I'm bad? Mm -hmm. And we very intentionally asked that question because that's how children think. If they're told, oh, you're such a good girl over and over, then they're going to naturally think that sometimes they're bad. And so we wanted to ask the question the way a child would, which is that way, But we did something different with the answer to that question than we did on on other pages. In other pages, we normally, the mother would kind of repeat the question in her answer verbatim, like, yes, God is there when you're happy. Yes, God is there when you're sad. This time she doesn't. She doesn't repeat the phrase when you're bad because we wanted to emphasize that a child is never bad. A child is inherently good just by virtue of them being a child of God you are created good and you are good. So we wanted to make sure that children understand that they're going to make mistakes, but that doesn't make them bad. That just makes them human. We're not defined by our mistakes. That doesn't create who you are, your identity. Your identity does not change as a child of God created in God's image and called good. Hmm. And that's something that was really important to us to instill. And it's, it's interesting how many people really pick up on that nuance in the book. And I'm so, so grateful because clearly it's a message that we all still need. We'll be right back to the rest of today's podcast episode. But first, we want to give a shout out to some of our amazing and faithful Patreon supporters, Jihoon Lee, Heidi Washington, and Jennifer Winner. For just $3 a month, you can help us keep the lights on and at the same time be part of our private Facebook community where you won't feel so alone in this evolving faith and parenting journey. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the episode. Well, I also love how you talk about like choosing goodness. My love, God, is here when you choose goodness and are living from your heart when you follow the path of love. I mean, I remember as a kid that you think that goodness is these sort of like check marks, right? Like you have to check off these sort of boxes, but just following the path of love is like inherently good. And that is a relief. Like we just have to love. We just have to follow that path of love, right? Like it's actually more simple than we're making it. You know, it's a children's book, but I feel like there's so much like good meaty stuff in here and like healing stuff. I don't know how you did it in such short pages, but 
Yeah, you absolutely did. It certainly took time and we had a whole lot more content than actually made it to print. But, you know, we have a mutual friend, a mentor, spiritual director of mine, named Danielle Schroyer. Oh, she's been on our podcast. Yeah, we love her. And you are well aware of her book, Original Blessing, which sort of turns this concept of original sin on its head. And I think the notion of original sin is really detrimental to parenting if you buy into that, because then you're basically believing that from birth, you're born bad, right? That you're born sinful and in need of, of redemption. And, you know, this concept of original blessing, I think is a, is really helpful for parents, you know, when talking to their children, letting them know that, no, you start from a place of goodness, you know, you're made in the image of God, inherently good and blessed. And so we had these big concepts and, and it, it takes work, right? To whittle it down. How do we put this in a children's book? And, but it was a good exercise and it's important for us as people of faith to be able to do that, to sort of narrow in on what it is that we believe. And so that was a big part of what informed that page is, is I think some of her work in writing too. Yeah. She's so powerful. She's actually, we had our podcast interview with her and she convinced me to become a spiritual director. And I am, I'm going to the same school where she teaches and Hayden Institute. Yeah. I'm going to Hayden. In fact, I leave, Amazing. I leave in two days to go to my second intensive there. So Oh, good for you. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm really excited. But I think her idea of the original blessing does inform not only our own work within ourselves, right, but massively changes the way we view others, and especially, and we're a parenting podcast, our kids. Because if you can see your kid as human, well, yourself as human as a mom first, Mm -hmm. and then see that your kid's just human, It changes everything instead of bad. Uh, My daughter and I had a conversation with a friend who, of course, had the was having the talk with us about our deconstruction and our terrible idea that we are born good. And he just said about his two year old, I just see her and I just see the wickedness in her heart continually. And I almost threw up in my mouth like I didn't know what to do with that. But I thought, well, of course, that's why he's going to act the way he does toward his child. We were talking about corporal punishment at the time. That that kid is just going to grow up thinking they're terrible. Like, what? I I don't know. That's just so one of the most harmful theologies, I think, out there. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, we can grow up with parents that are doing okay, right? But the culture of the church and the theology that we're absorbing from the church, I think that's what I'm learning in my healing journey, right? I mean, my parents didn't get everything right. You know, they subscribed to a lot of theologies that were harmful for sure. But most of the messaging that I was getting was from my church family. And I'm curious, Victoria, how much of what you're talking about in the book came out of your own woundedness and what you felt like you needed as a child and didn't get. Oh yeah, absolutely all of it. Hmm. I mean, you know, there's so, you know, there's so much about parenting that I have come to find that requires a reparenting of ourselves. And that is so healing. And we are learning our son was just diagnosed with ADHD and I'll get a little bit personal here, but I learned in his journey and, and doing the research that I have ADHD and was misdiagnosed my entire life. So I recently learned this about myself 
but I told my husband, it's so healing because I was disciplined pretty, pretty intensely growing up for behaviors I couldn't control and how healing it is for me now to have a son who models those exact same behaviors and there's no discipline for him. It's how do we help him? And also how do we celebrate what makes him unique? And it has been the most healing journey for me personally, because I'm learning I needed that. I never got that, but what a gift to be able now to give that to someone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of what the book has been in its own way too, is I didn't receive these messages that I'm good. It was know that you're bad and you're in need of saving because you're wicked. I didn't get the exact same level of intensity with the messaging, but it was there. I remember very vividly my senior pastor saying in a sermon, we are all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. And I knew even then sitting in the pews, I don't think that's right. Mm -hmm. I really don't think that's right. You know, and so that's part of what's really emboldened me and impassioned me to want to write these things is because I think it's needed for children. But yeah, I'm always thinking about what was needed for me that I didn't inherit growing up. So yeah, it, it, it's been a really healing act for me and I'm, I'm really grateful. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm in a little bit of a similar situation to you. And I, I think that it's, it's so important, I think, to remind ourselves that when we do things differently with our own kids, something in us heals. Yes. Yeah. Because I think it can be really easy to get caught up in the trauma of our own lives, right? And how hard it is to heal from that and how painful, but this constant reminder of we can do it differently and it also heals us. Right. I know Glennon Doyle says, and I've pulled this quote quite a bit, grace is when we can give others what we've never received ourselves. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's so powerful because there's something in deeper inside of us. Yeah. Deeper than the wounds, deeper than the trauma, deeper than the, the wrong beliefs, the toxicity. Where, like you said, I knew it. Mm -hmm. There was something deeper in me that said, that's not right. Yeah. And then, you know, because you're clinging to that now, this is the message I want for my kids. And I know for me as a mom, I know what I really, really believe by what I want to tell my kids and what I've wanted to preach to my kids. You know, like I got to a place where my love for my kids was much greater than my love for my theology. Mm -hmm. And that, that unconditional love I had for my kids won. It absolutely won out and it actually reached that part of me that you're saying that I didn't even know needed healing, but my soul was healed because then I was able to unconditionally love myself. I mean, I'm on that journey. We're all on the journey, right? But yeah, it, it's so powerful. Oh, I love that you guys have this book. I, I have a funny story to tell and I shared this with you before. I had a six-year-old reading it to me and it got to the place and we can talk about this a little bit about um, is God there when I... Uh, live and is he there when I I'm born, I guess, and there when I die? Is God there when I'm here when I'm alive or there when I die? When I die, right. And she said, wow, that got dark really quick. <laughs> and I remember turning to her and saying, well, what do you think the answer is going to be on the next page? And she was like, God is with us all the time. But I, I was wondering if we could dive into just a little bit about the there when I die. And maybe that's a different, little different theology that you, Victoria, had growing up. So that also was purposeful in your book. And what reason? Do you want to dive into that, Cameron? 
Yeah, I'll start. And then Victoria, I'll let you talk about some things from Danielle too. You're right. It did get dark quick. <laughs> but we don't, part of the reason we put that in there is because we don't want kids to see it as something dark, right? It's something that kids ask. And the reason we put that in there is because, you know, when we were exploring what kinds of questions to put in this book, we asked around about what are the questions your kids ask you the most about God, about theology, and heaven and death was like top of the list. Mm -hmm. Kids are very curious about that because they see it happening. You know, they know that we're going to die one day. They might have lost a grandparent or a dog. And so they want to know what happens. So we felt like to be faithful to our purpose of this book, which is to help parents learn how to talk to their kids about some of these tough questions, we couldn't avoid that one. Mm -hmm. And so we really did want to put that in there. And I have heard some really good feedback about it. A good friend of mine has a six-year-old boy who has been struggling with that. He has been afraid of dying to the point of tears, to the point of like, it's what he talks about it being tucked into bed at night and doesn't want to go to sleep because he's, a, you know, one of those. And she said that she read this book to him. And when they got to that page, he got tears in his eyes and he looked up at his mom, six years old and said, so it's going to be okay when I die. And she said, yes, it's going to be okay. So I'm, I'm really pleased that we were able to include that part of the book in there. And I'll let Victoria talk about how we got to the answer that we did. Yeah, I grew up in a tradition that the way that heaven was described to me, as I became more theologically educated, I learned was rooted more in like Western Greek mythology than it actually was in the Bible. And also, you know, I grew up in a tradition that you may remember that song about heaven as a big, big house with lots and lots of room and a big, big table, oh, yeah. big yard where we can play football. And, you know, just <laughs> like, I don't know. And I, there were times where I thought, how do we know that? You know, even as a kid thinking, like, how do you know, though, that there's lots of rooms and how do you know that we're going to play football or, or what have you, you know? And so I just got to a place in my own spiritual journey where I felt very unsure about what could be said about life after death and particularly this concept of heaven. And it actually was Danielle to bring Danielle up again. We were having a conversation. I said, what did you tell your children when they would ask about what happens when you die? I, I don't want to tell my children about this idea of heaven that's one, not biblically based, and two, not something that we even have an assurance in. And she said, I just tell them that you go to God. You go to God. That's all I say when they say, what happens when you die? I say, you go to God. And I, I get talk about, you know, the healing message you needed as a child that you inherit as an adult. I found that so liberating and it seems like a simple answer and it is, but it's also, it's a sufficient answer. You know, it leaves room for the mystery of that, which we don't know, but it does assure a child that God is there and it is biblically based, you know, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in life or in death, Right. And again, it leaves room for that, which we don't know. And sometimes I think we overfunction with our kids when they ask us hard questions. We give them more than we know and cast more doubt. And I mean, I remember my sister, you know, when my mom would talk to us about heaven and she would say, it just goes on forever and ever and ever. And that would make her sick to her stomach. I like vividly remember my sister would just get knots in her stomach, just thinking about this concept of like eternity, you know, my mom would say, but it's so good. Like you'll want to live forever. Like, you know, and I just thought, gosh, this is like making it all worse, you know? So we wanted to, to give a simple answer that we believed in and that we felt provided an assurance, but also didn't cast 
this broad idea of heaven that's not helpful and we don't know. And so, yeah, that's why we tried to keep the answer pretty simple, you know, answer it that God is there when you die. And we do believe that there's a peace that will be inherited that we don't have now. So it's a pretty simple answer, but we're proud of the way we articulated it. And we hope that it'll be a tool for parents when they have to answer the same question. I love that idea of you just go to God. It's so simple, but it allows for the mystery, right? Those two things are not necessarily opposing forces, <laughs> simplicity and mystery, right? Which is really, really, really neat. I love you said to Victoria about like embracing that mystery, mm-hmm. right? With our kids and being able to say like, I don't know the specifics. Like, I mean, my five-year-old's very much in this stage where like she talks about death a lot, right? Lots of questions. And a lot of the times the answer is just, I don't know that specific. I don't know if heaven is in the sky specifically, but I do know that God is where heaven is and you are safe there. Like you said, offering them that assurance, but not giving them more information than you can give, right? And then she said to me, well, I think heaven's in the sky. And I said, okay, great. Offering them the assurance and then letting them think things through and unpack it in their own way and leaving space for them to just kind of like explore that on their own, I think is really important. Some of what I think can be so harmful is when we hand our kids this certainty that we don't have, right? And I think a lot of the pain that you're talking about, Victoria, that I experienced, Esther experienced, was absorbing certainty that actually made zero sense. We're like, there's no way this can be true. I think it was Paul Tillich who said that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. And, you know, that's one of the things we try to talk about on a lot through Reverend Mamas is how doubt is such a critical component to faith, a companion to faith. You know, it helps us ask hard questions and it helps our faith to grow deeper. We posted something recently in which I tried to talk about doubt as a sign of an active faith. If you have doubt, if your children have doubt, that's a sign of engagement, right? That they're thinking about God and and that's something to be celebrated. But, you know, again, growing up in a tradition, it was all about certainty, believing enough, right? If you believe hard enough, if you're certain enough, then, you know, things are favorable or what have you. But doubt was never, never celebrated, never seen as a good thing. I don't know if it's Frederick Buechner. I'm not sure who says doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. I love that. Oh, I like that. I think it's Frederick Buechner, but it could be a Lamont. I'm not quite sure. So our final question for you is, and I'm sure that we've alluded to it somewhat, but if you had one message that you would want your kids to know about, say God, faith, and themselves, what would it be? And we'll start with you, Cameron, and then we can end with you, Victoria. What I want my kids to know, and this kind of informs a lot of my theology, is the power of God's presence. So, so much, I think, in church, in Christian culture, we talk about the presence of God's power more than we talk about the power of God's presence. And if you talk about presence, that God is always there, that nothing can separate you from God, and the way that God's presence is a refuge and a strength and nothing, you can't escape it, then I think it's so much more sustaining over the long haul, as opposed to when we talk about God's power, then, you know, then that raises issues of theodicy and and why bad things happen and why did God make this happen? And all these, you know, difficult why questions that we don't know the answers to, but if you rest in the message of God's presence, then you know that no matter what trials you go through, that God is there with you. And so that's kind of the overarching 
theology that I want my kids to really soak up. I think Liz and I both got out our pens and our pens. I wrote it down. Like, yes, yes. It changes. That just changes everything. That is really powerful. Thank you for that. Wow. That phrase was a big part of the book uh, that Cameron articulated and, and was in our pitch for the book, you know, that we want to emphasize the power of God's presence over the presence of God's power. I love it every time she says that. Okay, for my family, we ask our children two questions every night before bed, and they are, who is always with you? And the answer is God. And the second is, and who are you? And the answer is a child of God. And we ask those over and over because those are the two things I want them to remember most, that God is with them and that they're a child of God. And, you know, the hope is that they'll therefore know that they always belong, that they're loved, that they matter. So, yeah. So where can people find you? Where can people have more of this goodness? And I'm sure you guys have things that you're going to continue doing. So where can people find that? I think the best way you can find us is on Instagram at Reverend Mamas. And that's exactly what we try to do is provide resources for parents who want to raise their children in a healthy faith. And I think that speaks to all people, but especially people like you and I, Liz, who maybe grew up in a tradition that we inherited a lot of maybe baggage or wounds from. And so we're hesitant to know how to talk about the faith with our kids. So that's exactly why it exists and what we hope to do. And that's also the best way to keep up with future projects that we're doing. And and we hope to write more books soon. Yeah, that's so good. Thank you guys so much. I mean, thank you. I am just thrilled. This has been so helpful to us personally. And also for our listeners. So we look forward to all the books that you guys are going to write in the future, hopefully. Yeah. And whether you have kids or not, buy this book because it was very helpful for me and I'm 33 years old. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, you guys. It was fun. Thank you. This was awesome. Well, that's it for this episode of the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on our website, deconstructingmamas.com. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter when you get there. If you'd like to support the podcast, join our Patreon network for just $3 a month and have access to our private community with all kinds of extras. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts or just tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.